0: Welcome to the Spanish Arpada. I'm Sarah. And I am Peter. In this series, Yo El Rey, we are ranking and reviewing all of the rulers of Spain, from Leo Vigil to Felipe the Sixth. Join us as we learn about each ruler, and then rank them in the categories of conquistadores. I'm guessing this involves violence. No me digas. Let's think about how that went. Yeah. Uh, Ortodoxia. Oh, he was f***ing his parents, I'm sure. El resto and then decide whether they deserve to sign the Fuero with their signature Mio el Rey, or whether we tell them Fuera. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. Last episode, the relationship between the British and Ashanti permanently ruptured. The British liquidated their West African trading company, the Company of African Merchants, and the government seized its assets. As a result, all of the treaties that the Ashanti had signed with the company were now considered null and void. With these treaties dissolved, war erupted. In the ensuing war, Osei Bonso's army inflicted an immense defeat on the British when they tried to invade Ashanti territory, before the king quietly passed away from natural causes. In this episode, Osei Bonso's successor, Osei Ya Okoto, will try to fill his predecessor's enormous shoes, and launch a counterattack against the Ashanti's British enemies. Season 3, Episode 17 the rocket's red glare. In 1825, the Ashanti seemed unstoppable. Over the last two decades, they had crushed all of their challengers. The Fonti, Jiaman, and, most surprisingly, the British, each had challenged the Ashanti's position as the dominant power in Ghana, and had been mercilessly and ruthlessly crushed. Under Ose Bonso, the Ashanti had reached their all-time economic, political, and territorial peak. But, as we're all aware, reaching a peak means it's all downhill from here. Before we can continue, I think it's really important to note that, in the way that only historical hindsight can provide, Osei Bonso's death is a turning point in Ashanti history. It represents the end of an incredible period of undeniably effective leadership in Ashanteman. Osei Bonso is, in my view, really the last Ashanti king that you can really call a great ruler. Not a perfect ruler, as he made a few strategic mistakes, and definitely not a morally good ruler, as the people of Anomabu and Jaman can attest to. But Osevonso was undeniably an incredibly effective ruler. He achieved basically all of his major goals, and the empire was left by his death in a significantly better state than when he inherited it. And from here on out, we'll never see the Ashanti ruled by someone like this ever again. Now, I'm not trying to imply that this is the reason why the Ashanti empire will, as we see, decline. Numerous economic, military, and geopolitical factors will play their part in that. Rather, I'm just saying that, until the Empire's very last moments, we will never see any kind of ruler with the same achievements as the likes of Ose Bonzo, Ose O Opokuware, or Ose Tutu. Today, we take the first step down in a descending staircase of civic leadership decline, with the rule of his successor. In 1817, on behalf of the then-still-existing British Africa Company, a diplomat named Thomas Bowditch visited Komasi on a journey to sign a treaty with the Ashanti Heneose Bonsol. His journal, later published as a book called Journey from Cape Coast to Comasi, provided great insight into the life of the inhabitants of Kumasi and has since become one of the most cited sources by historians on Ashanti Daily Life. Throughout the book, Bowditch's generally negative perception of the Ashanti is transparent. He makes no qualms in making clear his generally negative views of Ashanti culture and, especially, religion. But even through this lens of bias, Thomas Bowditch couldn't help but admire many elements of Kumasi. He praised the architecture, its efficient urban design, and most of all, the city's hygiene. In particular, he was very impressed by the system of indoor plumbing that was present in every house, and wrote that the streets of Komasi were magnitudes cleaner than the alleys of Paris or London. He noted the inhabitants' kindness towards strangers, children, and the elderly, as well as the Ashanti's propensity to make beautiful music, poetry, and visual art, as well as their skill in pottery and metalwork. Nobody impressed Bowditch more during his stay, though, than the Hene himself. Bowditch wrote glowingly of Osebonso's knowledge of the outside world, his ambitious architectural projects, his keen and efficient financial skills, and his eloquent conversational abilities. However, one of the aspects of Kumasi that Bowditch didn't take a liking to was the king's younger maternal half-brother, Osei-ya Okoto. He wrote in his record, Osei-Koto, the king's brother and the heir to the stool, appeared to me very inferior in ability to his brother, but the Ashanti say otherwise. Now, not all of the Ashanti were saying otherwise. A fair number agreed with Bowditch's view that Osei-Koto paled in comparison to his elder brother. In fact, like Ose Bonso, Ose Akoto's name is not his birth name, but a nickname, and a pretty revealing one at that. Kings receive nicknames in many cultures, and typically, their nicknames can tell you a lot about how they were perceived by either themselves or their contemporaries. Ose Bonso, as we learned, means Ose the Whale, a great maritime beast that signified Ose Bonso's lordship over the sea. Akoto is a little bit less flattering. Akoto is a chui word for the bark of a specific type of tree- often processed into a maroonish red dye. Osei Yaakoto earned this nickname through having an unusual skin condition that made his skin swell with a reddish hue, and that tells us a lot. One king's nickname symbolizes a triumphant conquest, the other's an embarrassing skin condition. Beyond even that, Akoto is also a bit of a pun, as the same word, when said with a different tone, also means to beg for approval. So not only does his nickname poke fun at Oseya's unusual skin tone, but also at his general insecure personality and desperate desire for respect. Oseiakoto was born as the very youngest child of the prolific queen mother Konodo Yadom. As a result of his junior status, nobody had great expectations for the red hued young man, and few thought that he would ever see a position of power. During the period of dynastic strife between his mother and Osei Kwame, Kornado's youngest child was treated by everybody as an afterthought. In fact, he barely even truly met his famous mother at all, as from a young age he was shipped out of Komasi to a rural village to live with a family friend for his own safety. So, how did he go from an afterthought to Osebonso's heir apparent? Well, it mostly came down to a string of bad luck in terms of his brother's health. Kornado's eldest son died of a potential poisoning, and second oldest brother, Apokufofi, died just a couple months into his installment in 1803. Ose Bonso, of course, has stuck around for a while, and we've gotten to know him well. But then Konodo's next youngest son, Ose Bonso's heir apparent, was one of the many Ashanti victims of smallpox during their 1807 invasion of Fanti. So, there you go. Through a string of unfortunate deaths, Ose Akoto, the insecure baby brother with the skin condition, was now next in line for the Golden Stool. And when Ose Bonso died, also fairly young I might add, in 1826, the rule of Oseya Oseyaakoto was now an unexpected but real reality. 1826 must have been a strange time to take over the Ashanti Empire. On the downside, Akoto did not take over during peacetime, he still had an ongoing war with the British to deal with. That's a lot to worry about for a new king. But on the upside, the Ashanti seemed to be very much winning that war the attempted British invasion of Ashanti territory had ended in a triumphant Ashanti victory. Almost all of the invading force had been captured or killed, including its leader Charles McCarthy. And if you want to learn more about McCarthy, his life before the Ashanti War, how his governance of Sierra Leone contributed to his downfall, or just more generally about the culture, governance, and origins of the Sierra Leone colony, you can support the show by checking out our latest premium episode on the topic. So, if you'd like to listen to this or one of our other 20-plus premium episodes... Go ahead and support the show at patreon.com slash historyofafrica. So Osei Bonzo's job ascending to the throne was less about winning a war, and is better described as, I guess, mop-up duty. The enemy army had already been mostly destroyed, so it was presumably just a matter of recapturing a few unconquered Fanti territories, driving the British back to their castles, and signing a treaty that reaffirmed Ashanti sovereignty over the coast. In fact, he could have arguably just ended the war right here. On his deathbed, Osébónso is said to have whispered a dying wish to his brother. Do not continue the war any further. Sue for peace, negotiate a favorable deal with the British, just make sure you end the fighting. Whether this request was motivated by his belief that negotiating peace was the ideal strategy, or his lack of confidence that his brother would successfully finish what he started is up for interpretation. I personally lean towards the latter. After his brother's death, Osei-Koto promptly ignored his advice. If he was going to be Nishantahene in his own right, there was no better way for the overlooked and often disrespected new king to prove his worth than to equal his brother's battlefield acumen. He ordered for his armies to begin a final attack against the British. Importantly, osei decided that, in an effort to equal his deceased brother's reputation for battlefield brilliance, he would lead one of the armies himself. An accompanying decision was even more peculiar. He would bring the golden stool of the Ashanti with him on campaign. This decision is just so puzzling. The golden stool, remember, is no mere throne to the Ashanti. It is an object of religious significance, said to retain part of the souls of the Ashantihanes of the past. The object was so sacrosanct that even touching the stool directly could land someone the death penalty. So, why bring this sacrosanct object to a battlefield of all places, where it could be potentially damaged, lost, or, nyame forbid, captured? Well, the motivation was twofold. Osiakoto was not particularly popular, nor well liked, nor did he command much legitimacy besides being the heir of his brother, encapsulated in his ownership of the Golden Stool. He likely feared that, unless he had the stool with him on campaign, that his soldiers and generals would not obey and respect him. Additionally, remember that it hadn't been that long ago since the Ashanti had emerged from a long series of violent succession disputes. Perhaps Osei feared that, if he left the Golden Stool in Kumasi, that some distant relative of his or some other cadet branch of the royal dynasty could seize the opportunity to take power in his absence. To foreshadow a little... This choice to bring the Golden Stool with them on campaign will have consequences. In January of 1826, knowing that the Ashanti would try to recapture their lost southern territories, the remnants of the British army mobilized at the Prague River. Their strategy was to try to stop the Ashanti advance at a defensible crossing of the river. They failed. Over overwhelming Ashanti musket fire, the British and the remains of the Fanti, Denjira, and Wassa allies were once again defeated. The Ashanti army crossed the river without interruption, and the British, recognizing their poor odds of victory, retreated all the way back to their colonial capital, at Cape Coast. With the Ashanti army now marching its way to Cape Coast, the British colonial authorities at the city were engulfed by an overwhelming defeatist mentality. With McCarthy's demise in battle, a new governor was hastily appointed. His name was Charles Turner, and he was a one-armed veteran of the Napoleonic War and a distinguished army officer. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame stories wherever you get your podcasts. Turner, as well as the other surviving members of the colonial government of Sierra Leone and the Gold Coast, had been shaken by the severity of McCarthy's defeat the previous year. Some of them even began to question the value of the British colonies on the Gold Coast altogether. The original purpose for the British presence in Ghana had to do with British merchants tapping into the transatlantic slave trade, a trade which the British now banned. So what exactly was the point of them being there? After convening at Cape Coast Castle, the colonial government agreed that they would have to sign some kind of peace with the Ashanti, and whatever came out of the negotiations, they just have to live with. However, when the British announced their plan to negotiate peace with the Ashanti, they were met with outrage from their African allies. If the British negotiated peace with the Ashanti, that was almost certainly a death sentence for those who supported them. The British under McCarthy had urged the Fonti, Wassa, and Denshira to rise up in rebellion to begin with, and then they were just going to abandon them to their fate now that they'd lost a couple battles? Of course, these allies felt betrayed. When the British's intention of negotiating a treaty with the Ashanti became public, the allied battalions were sent into a fit of rage. Fearing what would happen if the British hung them out to dry, the kings of the Denchira and Wassa met that night to plan their next course of action. After a brief deliberation, they decided that, rather than risk betrayal from the British, they would continue to fight the Ashanti on their own. They and their armies stormed out of Cape Coast, vowing to continue their war. They met the Ashanti army in battle soon after, and were destroyed without a sweat by the better-trained and larger Ashanti force. If victory for the Ashanti had looked inevitable before, it looked like even more of a certainty now that the British and Fanti were without their other allies. With his victory now seemingly assured, Osei-Koto tried to reconcile with the British for peace. He ordered a diplomatic envoy to Cape Coast to negotiate an end to the war. With their current advantage and leverage, any agreement would surely be favorable for Ashanti interests. Additionally, as a show of good faith, osei decided to pardon a British prisoner of war, one of the few surviving officers from the destroyed British invasion force, and asked for the envoy to bring the officer with him to Cape Coast. This was a smart diplomatic move on osei part. Releasing the officer not only showed his good faith in negotiations, but also alleviated questions and hostilities over how British POWs would be treated. Not to mention, the officer probably had plenty of stories to relay about just how badly the British invasion force had been crushed, details that could further convince the colonial government to surrender. When the envoy arrived at Cape Coast, peace talks were initially productive. The Ashanti diplomats were, according to the British observers at the meeting, incredibly capable at their jobs. They showed the willingness and capability to compromise, but also knew exactly when to drive a hard bargain. Peace talks progressed surprisingly quickly, largely due to the ticking clock of the Ashanti army's advance on Cape Coast. So, the British diplomats had to be quick to concede many otherwise sticky points in the treaty, trying to conclude its negotiations before the Ashanti army reached them and made demands even stiffer. To many, peace by the end of April seemed like a likelihood, but they were soon to be disappointed. That April, as peace talks seemed to be coming to a conclusion, a British sloop of war, the HMS Driver, sailed into Cape Coast Harbor. On board was a small army of British Marines, as well as a high-ranking officer referred to in records only as Sutherland. Sutherland, with a slip of paper confirming his claims, declared that he was the new acting governor of Sierra Leone to replace McCarthy. The governing council of Cape Coast, powerless to stop him, was forced to accept Sutherland's coup d'etat. Once in power, Sutherland showed no interest in negotiating peace with the Ashanti, and declared his intentions to continue the war over the protesting voices of the other members of the British colonial government. After so much progress, peace talks were abandoned overnight, and in their place, the British began to fortify Cape Coast for battle. British reinforcements trickled in from the ships in the harbor and joined the front line to slow the Ashanti assault. This effort had mixed results. The Ashanti were slowed for a little more than a month, but in June, the Ashanti reached Cape Coast. The British defenders of the town were overwhelmed. With the exception of the harbor, which was guarded by British warships, the entirety of Cape Coast fell to Osei-Koto's army within just a few hours of fighting. The British, seeing Cape Coast as a lost cause, retreated to Anomabo along with the remnants of their African allied armies. The Ashanti army followed their retreat in close pursuit. Despite the fact that the inhabitants of Anamabo had declared their intention to remain neutral at the start of the war, their home was soon transformed into a battleground as the two empires clashed. At first, the British were surprisingly successful. They took advantage of an Ashanti tactical blunder by Osei-Koto himself. The Ashanti-hene, commanding around 6,000 soldiers, accidentally marched his troops a little bit faster than his compatriots and arrived to battle with the British before the rest of his army were even close. Out of position, but with better numbers and supply, this early skirmishing proved indecisive, with neither side achieving victory. However, when the rest of the Ashanti army eventually caught up, the British were forced back with ease, resulting in another Ashanti victory. The British column continued to retreat, but they were running out of land. All they had left was their last secure outpost, Fort James in Accra. The city of Accra has been in, let's say, an awkward position in regards to this war. If you recall, Accra was still an independent city-state at the time, the most prominent of a collection of Ga cities on the southeastern coast of Ghana. Since the rule of Osequadjo, Accra had remained a steadfast Ashanti ally, largely due to the fear of Fanti aggression. Remember, not too long ago, the Ashanti had gone to war with the Fanti, ostensibly to protect Accra from invasion. But in the 15 years since that invasion, things had changed quite a bit. Accra was the primary trading hub on the Ghanaian coast. As a result, it was the only city in Ghana to feature trade forts from all three European trading companies in the region. They maintained positive relations with all three European colonial powers as well including the British. So, when two of Accra's biggest allies went to war, the city had to awkwardly declare its own neutrality. This had come much to the annoyance of Osebonso. While he had never publicly stated his opinion on the matter, he did openly disparage numerous other perceived Ashanti allies and subjects for refusing to aid his war and staying neutral. Preoccupied with his war with the British, though, he didn't care enough about Accra's decision to protest in any major way. However, after Osei Bonzo's death, relations continued to cool between the Ashanti and their ally. Things really got bad after Osei Koto's decision to pursue the British army east and capture Anomabu. The British, retreating to Accra, reported that the Ashanti were in hot pursuit and threatening to capture the city if the Ga didn't hand them over. And it's easy to see why the Ga would believe this. The Ashanti were clearly unhappy about Accra's neutrality so who's to say they wouldn't invade in revenge? Remember, the town outside of Anomabo itself had remained neutral in this conflict, but the Ashanti invaded anyways. Plus, the Ashanti's relentless march east from Cape Coast to Anomabo clearly put them on a trajectory to crash into Accra itself. Now, in hindsight, we know that these reports were not exactly true, as Osei Koto had no intention of trying to capture Accra and eventually did move his army's marching trajectory north. But the report understandably spooked the Accra nobility into action. The King of Accra, along with the governing council of oligarchs who ran the city, decided that they had no choice but to join the British in repelling their former ally. To make matters worse for the Ashanti, several British transport ships arrived in Accra Harbor carrying even more reinforcements, mostly troops from their colonies in the Caribbean. Even a few Dutch and Danish soldiers, theoretically also neutral in this fight, but fearing the prospect of Ashanti dominance over Accra, joined the Allied ranks. The remaining Acheam and Aquapim rebels also flocked to the British ranks, aware that the coming battle outside of Accra would prove to be the climax of the Ashanti's multi-decades of war in the south. Between their allies and the reinforcements, the British army at Accra was now more than 10,000 men strong, ready to face the 16,000 Ashantis marching north of Accra. With their numbers rejuvenated, the Allied forces marched north to set up defensive positions 16 miles outside of Accra, in a field called Katamanso. The Ashanti, also aware of the potentially climactic nature of this battle, divided into two wings. One was led by Oseko to himself, and the other by the Contigene. As the British and Ashanti armies clashed, it became immediately clear that this battle would not be a glorious victory for either side. The Ashanti wings, attempting to encircle the British, were stonewalled by tough British and Ga resistance on the flanks of battle. The British, on the other hand, were under constant pressure from the Ashanti forward guard. The British and Ashanti centers each fired volley after volley of musket shots at the other, with casualties mounting into the hundreds after only a brief clash. With the Ashanti wings stalled, Osei ordered constant and heavy reinforcements to the forward guard, hoping to create an opening in British lines. As ammunition ran low on both sides, soldiers drew their akrafanas and bayonets to charge at the enemies. Soon, the battle at the center had devolved into a sluggish, bloody melee. Despite heavy losses, the Ashanti were winning. The British lines, while not breaking, were bending in a manner that almost divided them in two. Barely holding on by a thread and desperate for reprieve, the British commander unleashed a secret weapon that he had been withholding until such a desperate moment of need. Being a global empire has its perks. One of the largest of these benefits is that, as a truly global state, the British had access to numerous different technologies invented all over the world. In 1780, more than 40 years before their war with the Ashanti, another British army several thousand miles away was at war with Mysore, a kingdom in central India. In this conflict, the Mysorean army developed a unique technology to defeat their British foes. Small iron rockets, mounted at the end of a long pole, were lit and then fired at British lines. Despite their small size, these rockets did serious damage. Some were mounted with blades, others filled with flammable substances, and others packed with additional explosive powder to increase their punch. The British, mortified by these rockets' effectiveness, adopted the technology. Renamed as Congreve Rockets, the British put these rockets to great use in the Napoleonic War and the War of 1812. In fact, if you're familiar with the American National Anthem, Congreve rockets are the rockets referenced in the tune about the Battle of Fort Henry. By the start of the Ashanti War, the British had even organized fully dedicated rocket divisions, one of which landed in Accra along with British reinforcements at the lead-up to Kadamanso. So, with their defeat seemingly imminent, the British artillery began launching Congreve rockets at the Ashanti lines in a desperate attempt to turn the tide. The Ashanti had never seen anything like this before, The shrill scream of the rockets, their red tails of smoke, and the terrifying explosions they produced shocked the already shaken Ashanti army. Fighting had already been so fierce and so brutal on that day that this shock seemed to be the final straw in the minds of the Ashanti forward guard. So close to victory, the Ashanti forward guard began to panic. Soldiers trampled over each other, trying to retreat from the British rocket artillery. To the Ashanti soldiers, it must have felt like the British had lured them into a trap, only to unveil these strange weapons. The Contiene and his officers tried to restore order in their lines, and they seemed to be close to recovering morale, until they noticed something in the distance. On the other side of the battlefield, Osei Koto joined the panicking soldiers, and was fleeing the battlefield as fast as his legs allowed. Most shockingly, he abandoned the golden stool, tossing it onto the ground in his desperate scurry to flee. Fortunately, an Akwamu mercenary in the Ashanti forces recognized the stool and scooped it up before the British could capture it. Seeing their king run in terror completely evaporated the little remaining morale in the Ashanti armies. As the forward guard collapsed and the British pressed forward, the Ashanti wings were now isolated. Many members of the wings were left stranded and captured or killed. While the Contehene eventually managed to reorganize his army into an orderly retreat, it was clear that the Ashanti had snagged defeat from the jaws of victory. The battle, which had at first seemed like it could be the final piece to a decisive Ashanti victory, turned into their worst military disaster since Atakpamé. Despite the Ashanti's defeat at Kadamanso, hope for a favorable outcome in the conflict did not evaporate. Sure, the Ashanti had lost the battle, but the British had not really managed to capitalize on the victory. The British tried to counterattack and recapture on Anomabo, only to meet with failure after a few short skirmishes. Over the next three years, the war devolved into a stalemate. Both armies would occasionally try to rally a counterattack at various points, but neither found anything even remotely approaching success. The Ashanti still occupied much of Fante and Cape Coast, while the British exercised uncontested control over Accra and its surroundings. If the British and Ashanti soldiers had hoped that this stalemate would grant a well-needed break from violence and suffering, they'd be mistaken. Yes, the prospect of death on the battlefield was shrinking, but a new, silent killer would prove much more deadly. Smallpox had been going around the Ashanti army for a while now, though never in number substantial enough to cause any serious worries. However, in 1830, a severe outbreak of the disease emerged, which saw smallpox truly take its toll on Ashanti numbers. Thousands of Ashanti soldiers died or were too sick to fight, posing a serious threat to the stability of their occupation. This could have been strategically devastating for the Ashanti, had the British not been suffering from the same deadly outbreak on an even more devastating scale. Both the British and Ashanti were too weak to consider mounting an offensive against the other, and both saw their ranks thinning rapidly due to the outbreaks. This couldn't go on. With the reality of a creeping, deadly stalemate setting in, osei realized that now he had no realistic option but to sue for peace. The British were divided on how to respond to the Ashanti peace offer, but ultimately, a pro-peace faction won out. The Acheam and Fanti kings, disapproving of the British decision to pursue peace with the Ashanti, refused their invitations. Now, negotiating such a treaty would prove to be a serious challenge. We've already seen multiple attempts to broker peace in this conflict end in failure. Not to mention, it's not like one side had decisively won the conflict. At first, the Ashanti were the clear and undisputed victors and they still held a general advantage in the proceedings due to their occupation of most of southern Ghana. But the disastrous defeat at Katamanso and the Ashanti's retreat that followed ensured that the peace proceedings would resemble a multilateral negotiation, with concessions and demands from both sides, rather than any victor making demands from the vanquished. Not to mention, neither side, especially not the Ashanti, wanted to get on the bad side of the Dutch or Danish. The outbreak of war with the British showed osei and the Ashanti government just how crucial their trade routes were. Throughout the war, Ashanti domestic firearm and ammunition production was supplemented by the arms trade with the Dutch and Danish. Without this trade, it's unlikely that the Ashanti could have kept up the fight against the British for eight years without running into serious supply problems. So, the war had strongly reaffirmed just how important it was for the Ashanti to maintain good relations with the Dutch and Danish. While the Dutch had historically been reliable allies of the Ashanti, the Danish were somewhat of a diplomatic wildcard, so the Hene ordered a diplomat to secure a secret agreement with the Danish before proceedings even began. In an incredibly generous agreement, the predominantly Iwe towns of Keta and Ada, as well as the Danish zone of influence within Accra, were now considered sovereign Danish territory. In exchange, Ashanti merchants were granted an eternal right to free and unrestricted access to the Danish coast. This treaty was an incredibly smart move on the part of the Ashanti government. The Ashanti had never really claimed sovereignty over most of these regions anyways, so in practice, they were surrendering basically nothing, and in exchange gaining unrestricted mercantile access through Danish territory and more leverage in the coming negotiations with the British. Unlike the Danish, who negotiated their deal with the Ashanti in a formal, written treaty, the Anglo-Ashanti conference at Elmina was a little bit more ad hoc. Both sides requested that, unlike in previous treaties, the British and Ashanti representatives would not sign any formal written agreement. Speculation as to why both sides insisted on this peculiar condition is abundant. The mainstream scholarly opinion indicates that the lack of a formal treaty at the 1830 conference indicates a lack of confidence from both parties regarding the long-term viability of the treaty. Along this line of thinking... Both British and Ashanti diplomats didn't think that this peace would last long anyways, so there was no real purpose in bothering to write it down. The numerous agreements between the Ashanti and British African Company hadn't prevented war, so who's to say that this treaty would? However, I am a little bit skeptical of this idea, and agree more with an alternative hypothesis floated in more recent historical literature. This hypothesis argues that apprehension did play a significant role in the Ashanti's decision to not pursue a written treaty. The Ashanti government held genuinely little faith in the ability of this treaty to prevent future wars, nor did they necessarily want to officially concede any territory that they could potentially get back in the future. But in the case of the British, instead of apprehension, it was actually the opinion of their allies that motivated the lack of a formal treaty. Remember how I said that the Fanti and Achiem didn't attend the conference because they didn't want a peace deal with the Ashanti? Yeah, they really didn't want a peace deal with the Ashanti. Upon hearing the accurate rumors that the British were talking to Ashanti diplomats, the Achem, Denshira, and Fonti armies flew into an outrage. Fearing that the British would sell them out in the coming agreement, as they had in previous deals with the Ashanti, the British's African allies converged into an angry mob in Accra, intent on ending any peace negotiations. Demanding that the British envoys return from Elmina immediately, The armies in Accra began to attack British troops throughout the city. The British were overwhelmed and driven back behind the walls of Fort James. When you consider that British diplomats had to worry about the opinions of their African allies, it makes sense that they wouldn't want a piece of paper that could confirm that they betrayed their allies and sued for peace. They could maintain plausible deniability that this was a mere ceasefire, at least until things calmed down. So, with the siege of Fort James ongoing... The British and Ashanti merchants got down to their secret negotiations in Elmina. Now, due to the secretive nature of the conference, we know surprisingly little about what would become the landmark agreement between the British and Ashanti governments. Historians can only speculate, based on the events that followed, on what exactly was agreed upon at Elmina. For starters, the Ashanti withdrew their armies north of the Pra River and its tributary, the Birim, marking the rivers as the de facto Anglo-Ashanti border. Well, sort of one area beyond the Pra River, territories north of Accra, remained undisputed Ashanti possessions. Additionally, much like in the Danish Treaty, Ashanti merchants were never harassed or blockaded from the coast again during times of peace with the British, indicating that free passage for Ashanti merchants to the coast was an included provision. Since this was the first agreement concluded directly between the British government and the Ashanti, it is also indicated that, according to diplomatic norms, The British recognized the independence and sovereignty of the Ashanti Empire as a nation. So, some of the more typical colonial behavior, such as sending unsolicited missionaries or freebooting mercenaries, or concluding agreements with anti-Ashanti internal elements, were now also a violation of international norms. However, the agreement wasn't all wins for the Ashanti. In exchange, the Ashanti agreed to cease the collection of taxes from the Fanti. Rather, the Fanti were to remain theoretically independent, in reality, though, the Fonti state, which was severely weakened by the last two and a half decades of constant war, was doomed to dependency on the British. In this new status quo, the Fonti were still allowed to dictate their own domestic policy, but their ever-increasing dependence on the British for protection from the Ashanti resulted in an encroaching British influence. In practice, they were a British protectorate though the British wouldn't formally admit that until several years after the agreement's completion. In later years, the British also claimed that the Ashanti recognized the independence of Asan and Denshira, though this never manifested in practice. This likely indicates that the Ashanti either never made such promises, and that the reports of this provision being included were a lie by the British governor to avoid conflict with their former allies, or perhaps it was the Ashanti who deceived the British, promising independence to these states, knowing that the British had no realistic chance of enforcing this independence so far inland. It's all speculation, because, again, we have no impartial record of events or any written documents to examine. The British also crucially agreed that they would turn over any runaway Ashanti fugitives back to the Ashanti, but prohibited the Ashanti from entering British territory and arresting people who lived in areas under protectorate status. Finally, the Ashanti were made to agree to enforce a prohibition on the trade of slaves with any British merchants ever, no matter what. These terms were acceptable to the Ashanti diplomat, and found support from the Dutch and Danish as well. The Dutch began carving out their own little empire from the few areas in southern Ghana not strictly under British or Ashanti sovereignty. In the southwest, near the territories of Awin and Wassa, an Akan ethnic group called the Ahanta, which had broken away from their previous Wassa overlords after the Ashanti's conquest several decades earlier, saw their territory subsumed into a Dutch colony through a bloody war of conquest. The Dutch also expanded their reach in Accra, as well as the regions surrounding Elmina. Over the next few years, the Ghanaian coast, with Ashanti influence curbed, became the de facto colonial territories of European powers. When I said a couple of episodes back that the year 1823 is when colonialism truly started in Ghana, well, by the start of 1831, it was firmly rooted. The days of European influence in Ghana being expressed through merchants stuck in coastal castles and powerless compared to the mighty states beyond their walls, those days are over. Though, do keep in mind, these Europeans on the coast were not omnipotent. Just as much as the war had come to their advantage, it had also showcased their many shortcomings the Ashanti had proven tactically superior to their British foes on numerous occasions, and proved that their army was a modern, well-equipped force with more than serviceable military technology. The bungled attacks on Insamanco and Abora showed just how easily the Ashanti could repel European attacks further inland. So, while the First Anglo-Ashanti War marks the true beginning of European colonialism in Ghana, it also showcases the limit of European power in the region. In terms of terrestrial combat in West African terrain, the British could maybe equal Ashanti capabilities on a good day, and paled in comparison on a bad one. They could conquer the scattered and devastated kingdoms of the coast, as long as they gave the Ashanti special privileges in return. No more, no less. But what are we to actually make of the war itself? Well, if you listen to British tabloids from the 1830, then the war was an easy and overwhelming British victory. The British showed the superiority of their Christian Western civilization, and the Ashanti savages, who ignorantly worshipped the British Congreve Rockets as gods, were no match. Of course, if you listen to the accounts of the people who were actually there, from British soldiers or Ashanti military record keepers or neutral observers, then this was anything but true. The supposedly glorious victory at Cattamonso was a hard-fought, bloody, and incredibly close affair, and compare that to what happened to McCarthy. Historians generally divide the First Anglo-Ashanti War into really two phases, the Insamanco War and the Katamanso War, with the first being a resounding Ashanti victory and the second a gruesome stalemate. But these wars were, truly, one conflict. If I had to determine a victor in this war, I'd argue that the war was an incomplete victory for both the British and the Ashanti osei had reasserted uncontested Ashanti access to the entire Gandhian coast, and had ended the long-lingering questions over the sovereignty of Achem and Denshira. Sure, he had been humiliated in battle in the process, and that would haunt him, but at the end of the day, a stable frontier in the south is a stable frontier in the south. Hung out to dry by the British, the remnants of the Achem and Denshira rebels were brutally crushed, along with any hope of separatism for several decades. For the first time ever, the Ashanti truly possessed complete sovereignty over Achim, Asen, and Denshira. Both the British and Ashanti empires emerged from this conflict in arguably a better diplomatic position than they started. The true losers of the war were the British allies, the Achim, Denshira, and Fanti most of all. They had fought hard and sacrificed a lot in this war, and in return, all they got was their sovereignty eroded. So, what happens in the Ashanti empire after the end of the First Anglo-Ashanti War? Does it mark the beginning of a long period of peace and prosperity in the Ashanti Empire? With the war finally over, we'll see Osei Koto try to rule his country during peacetime, and see his shortcomings as a ruler become incredibly visible. Join us next episode, as Osei Koto's rule turns from disappointing to disastrous, and he develops a troublesome relationship with palm wine. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, and we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamieh, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, and Alexander Travis, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.